0: Hello and welcome to this episode of Zamnesia Talks. I'm Max Sargent and today we'll be talking to Professor Anil Seth, who holds the illustrious combination of titles Professor of Cognitive and Computational Neuroscience at the University of Sussex, Co-Director for the Canadian Institute for Advanced Research Programme on Brain, Mind and Consciousness, Advanced Investigator for the European Research Council and Editor-in-Chief for the journal Neuroscience of Consciousness, And on top of that, he's also the author of the best-selling book, Being You. Uh, Today, we'll talk to him mostly about his work regarding psychedelics, the brain, and consciousness. And you'll find out more about this later, but just so it's easy to find, the link for the Perception Census is slash And there, if you fancy it, and we hope you do, you can fill out his survey on individual perception. Uh, so without further ado, let's get on to the conversation. Okay, so a quick question to get us started before we get into some deeper things. What is the most interesting thing you've discovered regarding psychedelics and the brain? Huh. Um,
1: probably the most interesting thing was the first thing. The first study that uh, my group did with psychedelics was analyzing brain imaging data that came from People who'd taken either LSD or psilocybin or low dose of ketamine, uh, which is you know, has this strange um, strange sort of relationship with psychedelics. It's a sort of different kind of thing, but um, it still produces psychedelic-like effects. And we were studying brain data collected by by colleagues at Imperial, the, the group of Robin Cahart harris who's, who's now in, in San Francisco, because at Sussex we don't have the the licenses, unfortunately, to administer psychedelics here uh, for research purposes but in previous work in my group we've been looking at what happens in the brain when people lose consciousness when they fall asleep or when they go under general anesthesia things like that and one of the things we found was there's this particular measure which is a measure of how diverse the patterns of activity in the brain are you can think of it a little bit like almost how random the brain activity is, how many different things are going on. And we found that when you lose consciousness, your brain becomes more predictable. There's, there's less diversity. The dynamics are more regular, whether it's anesthesia or whether it's falling into a dreamless sleep. And uh, with psychedelics, we found the opposite, which was super interesting. So compared to a baseline of wakeful rest, your brain becomes less predictable, more diverse, a little bit more random. And this was fascinating because actually we tried a number of times to find conditions or states where this measure of diversity would go up rather than down compared to just normal waking awareness. And we hadn't found any. We'd only found things that make it go down, like sleep and anesthesia, until we studied these data from psychedelics. So this was, this was super interesting. Here's, here's, a, here's a first example of the brain reaching a state which is really quite distinct i mean of course subjectively it's very distinct but in terms of this dynamics measurement it moved in a different direction from any other manipulation
0: okay i was actually going to talk to you about this in a bit so let's do it right now uh, am i right in saying that this was reported in the media as discovery of a higher state of consciousness was this the same piece of research
1: well it was yeah which is something that we had to push back on quite quite strongly because you know there's there's very different meanings um so you know in in wider society you might think of a higher state of consciousness as something that is I mean, more valuable more um worth reaching higher in some sort of psychologically elevated level you know, compared to the mundane everyday waking life that we all lead when wandering around the world and what we found has really nothing to do with that kind of gloss nothing to do with that kind of interpretation it's purely a a measure of brain randomness brain diversity and sure that goes higher in the psychedelic state than in wakeful awareness and it goes lower when you when you fall asleep but that's that's a totally different meaning than um the colloquial meaning of higher state of consciousness. So yeah, we, it kept getting written up in the media. Scientists find evidence for a higher state of consciousness. And then the pushback would be, we don't need scientists to tell us that. We knew it anyway. And so it's like, hold on a minute. You're talking about something completely different. And of course, the fact that, I mean, we never mentioned this interpretation in the paper. So it's just what people you know, will take from it if they just want to you know, want to convey a simple message. But that's interesting, right? I mean, that's the, that's one of the bigger challenges is we have these measures of what happens in the brain but how do we connect them in explanatory useful ways to what happens in people's experience and it's it's not going to be a simple one-to-one mapping like it's not that something goes up in the brain and you know something goes up in in consciousness it's going to be more interesting more complex than that
0: okay thanks um I was thinking now maybe we could have some definitions for the people listening before we go any further, just so the rest of the conversation makes a little more sense. So given that, could you explain to us a little about the hard problem of consciousness in philosophy, which I believe is David Chalmers, and then your alternative that you've coined, the real problem, and then maybe also a little bit about your theory of the beast machine, and then from there we can go a bit more in-depth. <laughs> okay,
1: well, I'll try and fit it in a very, very concise how is it that some physical systems are identical to or, or give rise to conscious experience this is the hard problem which is a, a way of putting the problem coined by the philosopher david chalmers he says something like you know, it it uh, how does he put it he says um physical systems how is it that a physical system should give rise to um an inner life at all. It seems objectively unreasonable that this should happen, and, and yet it does happen. And so this is really my my approach, which is a middle ground between these things. And it's, it's certainly not only my approach. It's a lot of other people's as well. But I've called it slightly tongue-in-cheek, the real problem of consciousness. And it's to accept that consciousness exists. Conscious experiences are going on for, for you, for me, for other organisms. And they're intimately related to the brain and, and the body. And the challenge isn't, at least not at first, to explain how and why conscious experiences come to be, but to explain the different properties of conscious experiences, given that they exist. Like, why is visual experience the way it is and different from a musical experience or from an emotional experience? Why is the experience of self, of free will, the way it is and and not some other way? And why can we do particular things in virtue of being conscious and, and not other things? So that's the overall framing. And then just very briefly, the beast machine theory is, is my own kind of take on, on this, my own attempt at explaining the properties of consciousness. And, and the basic idea is to think of every kind of experience, whether it's of the world around us or of the self within the world, as a kind of perceptual prediction. And then the final piece of the puzzle is, just to scoot right to the end, is that the origin, I argue, the origin of all this predictive machinery that underpins all our experiences all has its roots in a primary duty of the brain to keep the body alive, to regulate the body, to keep blood pressure where it needs to be and, and so on. Because a good way to control something is to be able to predict how it behaves. So my argument is that all of our perceptions, whether they're of the world around us or of being a self within it, are grounded in control of the body and that we experience everything with, through, and because of our living bodies. What this does, it means that consciousness is very, very closely tied to our nature as as organic, living, flesh and blood systems, which is why I appropriate this old term from Rene Descartes and call it the beast machine theory about consciousness.
0: I see, and bringing it back to psychedelics, then is it fair to say that they disrupt the brain's processing and its ability to make these predictions accurately?
1: That's a working hypothesis, yeah, and and that's, I mean, it's it's still not really clear what exactly psychedelics are doing, and of course they may not be doing just just one thing. So we've we've done a number of studies now of, of psychedelics and. In different, from different perspectives, using different tools, and what we find is consistent with with that idea. But it doesn't; it, it's not a neat story by any by any means. So, in another study, we found that there's less information flow in the brain on psychedelics. So, for two different brain areas, whichever they may be, more or less, there's less talking between them in terms of information. And that's kind of interesting. You know, the brain becomes a little bit more functionally disintegrated in this sense. Then there's a lot of other work by people like Robin, Card Harris, and Carl Friston, who have this idea of this kind of relaxed entropy of belief. Um, you know, this idea that the brain becomes a little more flexible in how it makes predictions in the psychedelic state. And I think that idea has has some potential. But there's still a lot of work to be done in 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 fitting these models to the data and then doing experiments to, to refine the models. And one of the challenges is that it's really hard to collect the data in, in for, from people on psychedelics. You can do it, if you've got the licenses, you can do it when they're basically lying in a scanner doing nothing. But to really test interesting theories about what's going on, you need people to do things. You need them to engage in tasks, to do like perceptual decision making. Did you see that light or not? Or which way was that arrow pointing? Or how many dots are moving up versus down? And of course, people on a subjectively meaningful dose of psychedelics can't really do these sorts of things. So this is a this is a challenge.
0: Mm-hmm. And does this relate to the idea that on psychedelics, people's brains become more plastic and malleable? And perhaps somewhat resemble those of children in terms of brain scans and plasticity, or is that something else? Um,
1: Maybe I think it's it's a. I tend to resist this sort of equivalence between things like psychedelic experience or the experience of being a child or other kinds of altered states. I think there are so many different ways in which we can depart from sort of normal everyday experience. We we tend to kind of collapse them all together. I mean, I, having said that, we, we all forget what it was like being a child. I mean, William James, the psychologist, famously described it as this blooming and buzzing confusion um, where even the, the different kinds of senses were, were mixed together in a way that they just aren't for, for most of us adult humans most of the time, where it seems fairly natural. There's a division between what we see and, and what we hear, unless, of course, you're synesthetic when they get mixed together again uh, a bit more um but there there may well be some parallels alison Gopnik from from berkeley she t- talked, she speaks very powerfully about this idea that there that there are some deep parallels between infant experience and psychedelic experience the challenge again is one of of getting the data we can't really ask a 2 year old to describe what they experience using the same kind of vocabulary we might need in order to know how their experience relates to an adult.
0: Okay, great. Uh, Next question. What is the most interesting thing you've learned about the everyday waking mind uh, during your research regarding psychedelics or anything else for that matter? Well, I think it's it's this overall
1: message that the world as we experience it and the self as we experience it is not a direct reflection of what's actually there. It's a construction. Of the brain, in conjunction with what's actually there, and I've used the term which I heard from, first heard from uh, Chris Frith, a, a psychologist in London, that our perceptual experience, our everyday perceptual experience, is a kind of controlled hallucination. So it, it's a, it's a hallucination in the sense that it, the experience comes from within, but it's controlled in the sense that it's it's controlled by, reined in by, calibrated by signals sensory signals that come from the world so our perceptual experience although it's a construction is a very very useful construction and it's really helpful to realize the constructed nature of perception because it it allows us to recognize this kind of indirectness between our experience and what's there and this can be helpful in a number of ways i think it's it's helpful because it can it can sometimes break vicious cycles of thinking that how things seem really are how they are and especially in in certain cases of mental illness and depression and so on if we tend to see things in a particular way and believe that that's how they are they can reinforce negative patterns of thinking and so on so breaking out of that's quite useful meditation is of course a, a technique that's been used for thousands of years to do exactly the same type of thing and i think psychedelics can contribute to this because it it sort of reinforces that view too i mean your experience changes in quite radical ways you know you see things change things is more from shape to shape and and um are imbued with qualities they don't have in everyday experience and what's interesting to me is there's sort of two ways in which psychedelic experiences get interpreted by people who have them one way is that there's some sort of window into a into a wider reality that we're shut off from in our everyday existence, that they've given us access to some deeper level of objective reality. Another interpretation which I tend to favor is that it, it really shows that our experiences and our consciousness is so much grounded in our brain because we do a very simple thing. We, we change the, the level of serotonin in the brain by taking one of these compounds and our experience changes. Very quickly, and it tracks very, very well the you know the the alteration in brain chemistry that the psychedelics produces. So for me, psychedelics really do reinforce a materialistic picture of consciousness in which consciousness is a property of what's happening in our brains. I mean, it does also give us a bit more insight into the relationship between experience and reality because it again shows that if, if we understand consciousness and perception to be grounded in the operation of our brain. You know, then we can generalize that to everyday life and and realise that, oh, you know, this is happening not just on a psychedelic trip, or not just during meditation, or or not just during dreams, but everywhere and all the time.
0: Okay, so given that then, I have a metaphysical question for you. Would you say that the psychedelic state, the reality experience in a psychedelic state, is any more or less real than the one experienced in everyday waking life? Or would you say they're both equal and just both different brain states? Well, there's many different senses of real. I mean,
1: they're, they're, I would say, equivalently real in terms of their existence as subjective
0: experiences. But as a true representation of the external reality? Well,
1: then I think a psychedelic experience is less real, though I wouldn't use the word real. I would use, like, I don't know, in philosophy, we would use a more boring word like veridical so it's it's less tied to re- to what's actually out there. Again, just back to the terminology of of normal perception as a kind of controlled hallucination. You can think of of a psychedelic experience or or other kinds of hallucination that people just use that word for, like in, in psychosis, for instance, as an uncontrolled form of perception. I and mean, the brain is doing the same kind of thing, but it's no longer controlled by signals from the world. In the way that happens in, in everyday experience. Now, evolution has kind of sh- made sure that our everyday experience is related to the real world in ways that, that are very, very, you know, make a lot of sense, that are very, very tight, very, very intimate, and very adaptive for us. And the same doesn't apply in the psychedelic state or in other altered states.
0: Surely true. Surely true. Um, have you? an opinion on microdosing and how, or have you done any research or do you know any interesting pieces of research because i know it's a relatively novel field that there seems to be a lack of uh data on
1: that's right i i think the the jury's out i've been sort of talking about this with with people doing psychedelic research for some years now um kind of frustrated that didn't have the chance to do it much at sussex and the the reason is it gets back to what we were saying a bit earlier that people on a on a macro dose can't really do very much in terms of detailed experiments. You give them some instructions to you know, press this button when you see things move this way, whatever. If they're on a macro dose, they're not going to be able to do that. But on a micro dose, they can. A micro dose is, of course, partly defined by the ability to just get on with your day and do what you're, you would normally do with a, a sufficiently small dose that it doesn't interfere with it. Now, most of the research on microdosing has been about whether it affects things like your creativity or maybe your mental health, which are very important, but quite hard to pin down. And I think the evidence is pretty mixed as far as I know. I haven't read, I'm not totally up to date, but it's pretty mixed. And it's very easily confounded with things like placebo effects and expectation effects and and, and so on. So uh, for me, a much more interesting Line of research for microdosing is how it affects basic perceptual processes because if we think of the brain as a prediction machine and perception as, as a, a way in which the brain makes predictions now there are many of the paradigms that in psychology we use all the time to try and you know, quantify this process specify this process precisify this process now we could apply them in in states where where people have taken a small amount, a microdose of a like and it should change how you know, how they behave on these very very detailed tasks, and they should still be able to do them. So now I do think there is some work happening in this area now, um, but I'm not yeah I, I'm not aware of any particular example that, that's out there yet. But I think this is the way things are going, and I think this is the way things should go, and I think there's a lot of potential there.
0: Yeah. So tell me about the Dream Machine, which you're working on with John Hopkins, who I spoke to last time. Uh, That's right. Quite an an interesting project.
1: That's right. Yeah, I listened to your your conversation with with John, and it was it was actually a a real pleasure to to get to know him a little bit through this Dream Machine project. He did the the music for it. He made this incredible spatial soundtrack with with 32 channels of sound and, and 80 speakers, something like that. So the Dream Machine is based partly in art and partly in science and it's a way of generating a another altered state another kind of different conscious experience but unlike psychedelics it's based on a technique that we can we can use and deploy to the general public um without getting arrested and it's 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 fantastic so it's the the basic technique is to use stroboscopic light on closed eyes And stroboscopic just means very fast flickering white light on closed eyes. Now, the light has to be sufficiently bright and it has to be in the right kind of frequency range. Um, But if you get these things right, then pretty much everybody who sits in front of this light, closes their eyes, will have very vivid, interesting, emotionally powerful as well, visual experiences of colors, shapes, movement. Um, texture, sense of the visual field expanding, perhaps very interesting, very immersive, very compelling. And for most people, entirely unexpected because they're just sitting in front of a flashing white light. The neuroscientist William Gray Walter in 1950s first wrote about this phenomenon. Actually, it goes back further in neuroscience, but he was the first person to sort of really tackle it properly. He has a chapter in his 1953 book, called revelation by Flickr, which is a beautiful read um, around the same time a little bit later a, an artist called brian gyson had a similar experience sitting on a bus as it was going along a tree-lined avenue with the sh- sun shining through the trees so that gave a stroboscopic effect just for a few seconds and he had a similar experience and he decided he wanted to make this a sort of public art experience because he was challenging the idea that that already back in the in the 50s that we experience culture as something that is given to us that we consume from the outside um whereas with this this kind of experience it really feels like it's coming from within and it is coming from within so the first dream machine was was developed by brian gyson um together with a mathematician in somerville and, and also william burroughs got involved too and it was just a, a bright light in a rotating cardboard cylinder with slits cut in it. Now, I'd never heard of this, but in 2012, we started working on the neuroscience of stroboscopic light with my colleague, David Schwartzman, to figure out what was going on in the brain, because it's very interesting. You know, you, you, Your eyes are shut, yet you're having powerful visual experiences. What's happening in the brain? So we started working on this as a back burner project, and then 10 years later, again, Actually, we started about started just before the pandemic. A woman called Jennifer Crook had got in touch. She wanted to reinvent Brian gyson's um, dream machine for the twenty-first century. And so she collected a team of, of scientists, including me, philosophers, Fiona McPherson in Glasgow, musicians, we have John Hopkins, and architects, assemble collective, to build a new kind of dream machine. And what we built was a an installation that People would experience as a group. Between twenty or thirty people would go in, sit down in a very comfortable environment. They'd be guided through it. So much in in, in some ways, much like how psychedelic experiences are guided. Okay. Um, they'd be guided through it. There would be a thirty-minute strobe light uh, journey with with John's music, and then they would come out, and there'd be a reflection zone where they could talk about what they experienced with each other with some of the guides. They could fill in some surveys, which we were really grateful for about what they experienced. Um, they could even draw. People love to draw. I didn't think grown-ups like to draw that much, <laughs> but I was wrong. we've got 20,000 drawings from people who've been through the Dream machine now. Uh, so that's what it was. It was over it was installed in four cities in the uk over the over the summer of 2022, and um, it's been an, an incredible journey i think it's given thousands of people a new interest in the brain in the mind in consciousness because it really reveals to you that your brains are pretty amazing and even if you've never thought about any of the issues we've been talking about before you can't help confront them in the dream machine
0: sounds incredible have you tried it yourself (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I mean, I've tried it
1: a great number of times. I mean, because we've been working on it in the lab, I've, I've got one of a mini version of this kind of thing at home in in one of the rooms. um <laughs> nice. It's it's quite it's quite relaxing. You know, actually, just just to sort of link this to the previous conversation, we were very we were extraordinarily careful in everything we wrote about the dream machine to never mention psychedelics because it's not like a psychedelic experience, and there may be some similarities, but it's really kind of different and the mechanism is totally different i mean there are no you know you don't take anything there's nothing pharmacological about about the method it's light um but of course all the media reports straight away (laughs) were describing it as as a sort of drug-free psychedelic trip and that that was interesting just just the fact just even though we we were very keen to to make a firewall between the two and people would draw this um draw this relation and actually, one of the future projects we have is, and you know, we got a lot of spontaneous reports of people having you know, quite a lot of mental health benefit from this. Okay. So not everybody, it wasn't designed for that. It wasn't a controlled experiment. But nonetheless, just the weight of anecdote is, is motivating us um, to investigate now more systematically the therapeutic benefit of, of this intervention.
0: Do you have any suspicion what it may be? Is it just enough to break someone's standard perception of reality for a while to give them a kind of fresh sense of what's going on or do you think there's something deeper going on on a physical level it 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 might be a combination of things
1: i certainly think that's part of it so i think i mean that's one of the reasons i think psychedelics can be useful also for therapy is is they do provide this this first person break which which is helpful um for the for the lights for the strobe light there are also there's a wealth of pre-existing work showing how light therapy can be useful in different ways for especially for mild to moderate forms of depression and and seasonally seasonal effective depression um so there's there's things that might line up i mean it's it's still very early days what we need to do now is just um just some early pilot studies about its effectiveness
0: how exciting Uh, and final question and then i'll let you go do you take psychedelics yourself you don't have to answer you don't have to answer this if it no that's fine (laughs) to ask I mean it's yeah I have done yeah
1: I mean I think it's it's for me it was it's essentially about curiosity you know I've been interested in in the brain consciousness and mind kind of all my career all my life in some ways so Especially when you start working on these things from uh, you know a third person scientific perspective you, you want to know what it is that you're studying and that's the thing about consciousness you, you 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 to know you have to experience something yourself there are different kinds of knowledge you know, they there're the knowledge that you get from a third person the knowledge you get in the first person so you know i I'm certainly not somebody who's who's regularly taking psychedelics or who's felt the need to structure life around them and i i don't really think the experiences have necessarily driven any of the science or any of the research um, okay. in a direct way but they have certainly given me uh yeah a, a, a sense of understanding of, of the space of altered experiences. And at a personal level, I have found them incredibly powerful. I mean, I think I, the experiences I've had have been, they share all the characteristics that, that I've heard other people talk about in terms of you know, their emotional impact, their potentially transformational impact. So it's been a very valuable part of my life for sure.
0: Okay. Thank you very much. It's well, there's,
1: before, before we get, there is just like one other thing though, yeah yeah. there's one other thing which which is just like hopefully you if if one of the so back to the just briefly back to the dream machine so one of the really fascinating things there was that everyone has a different experience even though it's the same thing Mm -hmm. and the idea is that this is not only true in the dream machine it's true in everyday life too so we all have different experiences even if we're in the same environment um, again this is true for psychedelics right people can take the same thing and of course their journeys are going to be very different but in everyday normal life it's very hard to appreciate that we might have different experiences of the same shared objective world unless there's some sort of weird things like a photo of a dress that half the world see as blue and black and half see as, as white and gold but i suspect and, and along with many others that you know that this isn't the case, that, that we all have different experiences, even if we describe them the same way, and even if it seems like we see the world as it is. And so part of the Dream Machine program is this project called the Perception Census, which is a, it's more of a research project. It's a collaboration, again, with artists and philosophers and, and scientists. And we're trying to map out for the first time, really, how different our inner worlds actually are in terms of all sorts of things, vision, color, shapes, time, emotion, sound, music. How different is the way I see things from the way you experience things? And we know in psychology a bit about this. We know a lot about the extremes where people give labels to different sorts of experiences, like in ADHD or autism or synesthesia. But we know surprisingly little about the kind of the differences that might separate the majority of people who don't feel they belong to one of these categories and so the perception census is kind of an extension of the concept of neurodiversity but emphasizing that this applies really to all of us and we want to get some data about that how how different are all our experiences so um, we're still in a process of collecting data and it's these are simple fun illuminating hopefully engaging little Um, illusions and interactive experiments that people can do from their own computer at home you you can't do it on a phone you need a a laptop or a desktop but if you if you want to try it or any of your listeners want to try it i mean we'd be amazingly grateful yeah definitely uh, to get as many people to take part as possible
0: how do people find it and then we'll leave a link for it in the uh, write-up as well
1: that would be great max it's um Perception census. If you just search for perception census um, or just go to my webpage, anilseth.com, ilseth.com you'll find it from there easily enough.
0: Okay well I hope we'll get you some numbers. Uh, it's interesting hearing a scientist talk about different perceptions of the same thing because that's kind of taking an idealist perspective of a realist materialist issue um, mm. or not an idealist perspective rather but kind of it's just it's just kind of it seems novel to me. Often people, I know you get the sense that science takes this view of kind of one model fits all and looking out, looking to generalize rather than individuate.
1: Yeah, I think that's that's to some extent that's true. We, yeah, we want scientific theories to generalize, scientific principles to generalize, um, but that doesn't mean that the scientists, you know, the scientists must see something exactly as it is and you know we can come up with a a generalizable picture of the world by piecing together our you know, individually different ways of looking at things i think that's but that's the beauty of science as a method is that it kind of factors out that individual variation in coming up with generalizable principles the problem is when you apply that scientific method to perception itself you kind of turn it back in on itself but but you can you can still you, the method still works the method still applies um but yeah in fact you can you can think of perhaps some of the big debates in philosophy about the nature of thought or the nature of perception you know actually come about because the philosophers involved might experience thinking or perception in different ways but not realise that's what's going on. My my colleague on the Perception Census, Fiona McPherson, has written beautifully about about this idea, which I think is quite provocative.
0: Yeah, really is. Okay, uh, I feel like that may be a good place to leave it. I think because we've more or less run out of time, right? Unfortunately, we have. But thank okay. you, Max. That was that was a great ramble through stuff. Yeah, thank you very much, and thanks for your time. And we will, yeah, we'll, yeah, we'll let people know about the Perception Census.
1: Perfect. Thanks very much, Max.